0: Man, it was nice uh, singing together. I haven't done it in such a long time. Um, I reckon we're probably past the 100 mark though, so I don't know if we can sing anymore after this. But you know, if you get here before we hit like 90, we can sing together. And then the moment it changes, everyone has to stop. (laughs) Um, We are going through a series in 2 Peter. However, I took a bit of a break from it when I stopped by Refine, uh, which is our university camp for first, second, and third years. And last week at Refine, a question came up uh, during the question and answer session. I ran with uh, the men of New Life uh, while my wife was running a different session with the women. And the question came, what do men in church lack? You know, and this was very specific to New Life when uh, when he asked the question, what do men in New Life lack? But with the benefit of a week in between, I've had um, a little bit more of a thought, um, just about, I guess, making it more general um, to the people at church. Not just about the men at church, not just about the men at New Life, but what about, just what's a threat to the church today? What's something that people struggle with at church? You know, one of the characteristics of the age that we live in currently is, I think people desire relatability. People desire to see people that they can relate to, people desire to be relatable. Uh, We want to be able to look at people and see that they're interested in the same things that we are. You know, that's why a lot of these uh, slice of life, YouTubers or whatever it might be, are very popular these days. And everything is a special interest, you know, to someone, right? And conversely, we also want to look at, or we also want others to look at us as though we fit in. I think that much hasn't changed you know, throughout the ages. We all wanted it to fit in, uh, all throughout the ages. And we don't want to feel so different, after all, uh, from other people. Now, let's pause for a moment. Um, before I say the next few statements, I'm not saying that we have to be people from another planet or plane of existence who have no similar interests to anyone around us. But a big problem within the churches, at times, it feels as though there's no discernible difference between the lifestyles of those inside the church and those outside the church. You guys ever see this? You know, this might have to do with things like sexual ethics, this might have to do with how we spend our money, this might have to do with our view of sin and you know, all of these different things, sometimes it feels as though we in the church are not that different from people that don't know Christ. Relatability, it might be really great in that people might like the things that we do or the things that we're interested in, but I think we go too far in one direction and we provide a bad witness for Jesus to other people by the lifestyles that we lead. Once we become so relatable that we're partaking in the same things that other people are, we end up providing a bit of a bad witness. Um, the other day on some social media, I saw something about youth pastors that people knew. And this was not a, a Christian website. You know, it's not just Christians commenting on this. So there's a bit of social media and people are talking about youth pastors that they've come across as they've been raised or have attended church. And a bunch of people were talking about, well, their negative interactions with Christians. You know, oftentimes, social media kind of becomes you know, like this uh, hive of, social, of uh, negative interactions, right? So some people talked about Christian leaders that they've heard of or that they've known who have done some horrible things. They've committed adultery, they've sexually abused people that trusted in them, some people laughed at Christians that they knew that were partakers in different things, whether it's drunkenness, drugs, whatever, and they would make fun of them for their hypocrisy. You know, look at these Puritans, they say all these things, and then they do the same things that we do. Most of them just talked about, generally, how you know, Christians were just as bad, if not worse, than they were. And then, you know, people, felt as though there was actually no differentiation between Christians and the people that they were trying to evangelize to. So the question came up in my mind. Why is there sometimes no difference in lifestyles between Christians and those that don't know Christ? Why is there no discernible difference sometimes? I think this series answers that question, doubt. It's doubt, isn't it? Doubt causes us to ultimately put our trust in whatever's right in front of us, looking us in the face, instead of something that's uncertain in the future. And so we give in. We give in to temptation. We give in to whatever it is that's staring us in the face rather than thinking, no, this is where I'm headed. As Yunji mentioned, uh, we've been in a series through the letter of 2 Peter called the unbearable darkness of doubt. And in Second Peter, we see that those people that are receiving this letter have been struggling with doubt at, about the faith that they live in. And we saw last week, this is the same faith that we share with them and the same faith as, a, as with Peter and with the apostles as well. We read previously that a lot of this doubt centered around false teaching. Basically, false teachers had come in and said, Christ's second coming, not gonna happen. And if there's no second coming, then there's no final judgment either. So there's no point worrying about the way that we live. So there was a lot of doubt sown within this community about whether or not there was even any point in living in holiness for the sake of Christ. And those this would cause doubt, uh, those who doubted, to live lifestyles that showed no real difference to those who didn't know Christ. After all, what's the point of living in holiness and rejecting sin if there's gonna be no final judgment to come? I think you can see where I'm headed with this, right? Like, the result there, you know, the world that we live in today, it's not that different from the world that's in Second Peter. There's plenty of skepticism in this world as well about all sorts of things, but I think we can see together there's a great deal of doubt about faith in particular. We live in a country that's you know, very good, but is fairly secular as well. Just the time and the culture we live in, the attitudes towards faith kind of swings. There's a pendulum that swings between just outright ridicule of our faith. Are you believing this? To the other side of just making you feel, making you live in presuppositions against faith. Now perhaps today, you've come to church with a few doubts of your own, and it's our hope today that some of these clouds of doubts will lift as we read God's word together, seek the truth of who God is, and today from our passage, We'll look at the things that are trustworthy and the things that are not. But before we delve into the passage, how about I pray for us? Uh, Father, we live and we stand on shaky ground, on shaky foundations. When we think about the culture that we live in, a culture that tells us certain things about the way that we should be living and the things that we should be thinking. A lot of the time, we don't even realize that this is happening, but our minds are shaped in a certain direction, and we ask, Lord, that you would help us to lay down all of those things, that we would come in with open minds, open hearts, and open eyes to see what the truth is. Lift the veil from our eyes, Lift the clouds of doubt from around us that we might be able to see with fresh clearness, clarity, what it is and that your truth is. And we want to know who it is that we can trust in, and we want to be able to identify what is false amongst us. Guide us by your presence, guide us by your Holy Spirit that we might know you. Reveal the word to our hearts once again, and help us, Lord, to love you in Jesus name. Amen. The beginning of our passage today starts uh, kind of towards the end of chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. It reads this, "For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven, while we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, go ahead and keep your Bibles open. We'll be referring back to the passage uh, fairly often. I know there's gonna be a long stretch of passage uh, a little bit later on as well, which will be a little bit harder to see on screen, so if you do have your Bibles, do keep them open. In the time and place that this letter to Second Peter was received, this world was filled with all sorts of stories about gods and heroes. You know, they lived in the Greek world, the ancient Greek world, and many people would, you know, obviously regard them as myths, fables. Similar to us today, we would look at stories about Greek gods and heroes as myths. Perhaps you've heard of them as well. People like Hercules, Medusa, Zeus, Hades, whoever. At that time, a lot of these stories about Greek myths, all these things had morals. They came with morals at the end of the story that told people, and so, this is how you should live. Don't be like Zeus. And we're used to try to teach people about how to function as a good member of society. So you can imagine that when the false teachers heard about Jesus' second coming, the final judgment, they would look at this and think, from the perspective of this Greek mythology of all sorts of things, they'd be tempted to tell everyone this is just mythology as well. It's just being used to control your behavior, people. It's just being used to make you fearful about the future. In the present age that we live in, many people might look at the claims of Christianity with the same amount of skepticism. Maybe you come in with that same amount of skepticism yourself. People might state, all of this amounts to just control over people's morality, over people's behavior. But Peter, he could point to something that perhaps these purveyors of Greek mythology couldn't do. He could point to his own presence among other people as well that were eyewitnesses to Jesus, his majesty. And this was a big reason why it wasn't some myth or a fable, and this is what he tells us in our passage today. For us today, we have the benefit of hindsight as well, and we can actually look back and see, well, how did these apostles even live for the rest of their days? Well, they preached Jesus until the end of their lives. Most of them actually died very early in their lives because of this, very violent deaths. They went to their deaths for the sake of this, and so they must have some sort of a good reason. We also hear about other eyewitness accounts throughout scripture. We can see primary sources throughout history, the work of thousands of years of scholarship as reasons for belief. In the end, however, we're gonna find it very similar to Peter's time, there's always gonna be a step of faith required in order to truly move beyond the darkness of doubt into belief. Now Peter's eyewitness account tells us about this event that happened in his life, the transfiguration. Read with me, Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, I'll set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. If you're following along on screen, this is a bit of an image that I found of stained glass of the transfiguration event. What I really like about it is, when the sun shines through, you can kind of start to imagine what it must have looked like for these disciples. Not quite the same as being there in person, but I imagine it would be very blinding, right? So in the Transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain and is transformed before their very eyes. His clothes start shining, white as light itself, it says. Moses and Elijah, these long dead people, appear with him. And then the disciples hear God's voice proclaiming, this Jesus, he's my son, he's my beloved son. And the way that Peter explains things here This transfiguration, it's showing not just the mighty power of our God, Jesus. It's not just talking about the glory of Jesus, who is truly God, but it also served as this vision of what was still to come. His coming once again to rule and reign. So Peter and the others not only saw, but heard God's voice as it declared Jesus as his son, crowning him with glory and honor for God is sovereign over this world as creator. And as God's son, Jesus is heir to this kingdom. He's gonna be king. What Peter is saying here is, Jesus is gonna to return to this earth and exercise this rule. This kingdom is his, he is the king. And so Peter made known to his readers the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not just the power, not just about his identity, but the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, what he is going to do. In verses 19 to 21 of our passage today, it reads, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, No prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the apostle Peter is going on and saying, look, it's not just about my own eyewitness accounts, there's also this prophetic word that exists among you today. So Peter's gonna get to talking about some very specific events throughout the Old Testament, and we're not gonna take too deep of a look at this, but he talks generally about scripture as a whole right here as well, as a prophetic witness about God. Now what is this? What is a prophetic witness? What is prophecy even? Prophecy, I think oftentimes when we think about prophecy, we think about predictions about the future, and it can include this as well. But more often in the Bible, prophecy is used as an enforcement of the covenant between people. And so the agreement that exists between God and man, prophets come to serve as reminders to them. Hey, you guys made an agreement. You guys made a covenant. God is holding up his end of the bargain. What about you? What about us as humanity? And so Peter says, scripture itself is this type of witness between God and us. Scripture itself serves as a prophetic witness to us. So to Peter, rejecting the coming return of Jesus by living a lifestyle that was like those outside of Christ, it's very much like rejecting the honor that God placed on Jesus at this transfiguration, which is also like rejecting Scripture itself, which serves as a prophetic witness to God which is also like rejecting, honoring Jesus and God. And so to live this lifestyle with no discernible difference is dishonoring Jesus and God. The Bible is our faithful witness. They're not simply words of men. We have plenty of that already in this world when it comes to philosophies when it comes to rules for living, when it comes to conventional wisdom, that the world pushes forward. But these, in scripture today, these are the very words of God. As human authors, we're divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words to us. Second Timothy three says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God inspired all of the Bible, every single part of the Bible, that we may be made complete, equipped for every good work, as we have also seen in Peter's letter today. Because these are not just words of men, but the very words of God, and so it's trustworthy. So the prophetic utterances, the interpretations about these prophetic witnesses that flow from the Bible are also inspired. So we can see consistency when it comes to the Bible's teaching in that the same message of grace is spoken throughout the entire Bible. This message of grace that we're always on about here at New Life, the grace, the gospel of grace, this is the same message that comes about all throughout the Bible. We can also see what happens to those people who would prophesy or teach falsely. Variously, if you read your scripture in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Deuteronomy, we see that the Lord identifies false prophets and teachers and tells them, put them to death. I love that we have the most reliable witness here in scripture. I love that we can depend upon the Bible. It's true when others in this world may lie to us. It's life-giving when everything else in the world might lead us to death. And it's consistent when others in this world might waver and change. Why is it so important that the greatest authority in our lives is consistent. Imagine with me a scenario, okay? You're gonna be building a house very soon, okay? And you have the choice between two builders. One is a rabbit, and one is a turtle. You know, perhaps some of you guys recognize the story. The rabbit tells you, hey, don't go with the turtle. He's too slow. He tells you about how quickly he can work. He's a rabbit. You ask for a quote about the amount of time it's going to take. He just says, don't worry. It's going to get done quickly, or maybe not, but it'll get done. First day you come by, you drive by, you see the sight, and the rabbit is there zipping around, high speed, and you think, man, this is going to get done in no time. I'm going to be living in my house very quickly. But later that afternoon, you come by, and the rabbit's just laying there, taking a snooze, like, you know, like my rabbit up there. Because it's tired from running around. It's expended all of its energy. Same thing again the next day, and the next day after that. And everything is coming together in bits and pieces, depending on how tired the rabbit gets after short bursts of energy. Meanwhile, you talk to the tortoise, the turtle. He's a bit slower to work, but is remarkably consistent. You give him plans to your house, he tells you he'll get finished within a certain day. He'll go no faster, no slower. And then he gets to work immediately. And slowly, he's putting together, agonizingly slowly, just the foundations to the house, working to get everything done. And every time you come by, a small part of the house is finished. The final quoted day arrives, the house is there. No faster, but no slower, and everything is done consistently. And this is an extremely ridiculous example that has some sort of morality behind it. Analogy-wise, it might make sense to some of you who recognize the story of the tortoise and the hare, you know, about their little race that they had. But otherwise, you might be sitting there thinking, yeah, that's cute, but why... Are we talking about a rabbit and a turtle in the construction business? It doesn't make any sense. They don't have opposable thumbs. They don't have the way to think. When we're talking about the reliability of scripture, how does that make sense? Is it meta? What are you getting at? But thank God for the consistency of scripture rather than the inconsistency of very hit or miss sermon examples. So Jesus, the word of God, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the Bible remains a consistent witness to His grace and a constant guide to lead us back into repentance. The words that are in the Bible are to be treasured. And we we see that already when Peter says that in verse 19, that we would do well to pay attention to it because it's a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns darkness of the corruption of this world, indeed the darkness of our own hearts, they are to be illuminated by the bright, shining word of God until the day that this light is no longer necessary because the night is over and the day has dawned. Do you see hints of the transfiguration in scripture in front of you? It's a shining light in darkness. And this day that Peter's talking about is the day of Christ's return. The very thing that the, the false teachers refuse to acknowledge as they live indulgent lifestyles. But for us, as followers of Christ, we're to treasure his words as though they're like love letters left to us by our beloved while he's away from us physically. But when he returns, as promised, we can place the letters aside and meet him face to face. 1 Corinthians 13 details this. Love never ends, but as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. With all this in mind, what do we do about those people who would twist up the words of scripture to say whatever it is that they wanted to say? Do you feel like you could identify false teachers fairly easily? A long time ago, when I first came to know the Lord, when I was first coming along the church after committing my life to God, I didn't really have the categories to think about false teachers. Like in my mind, Christianity was this huge umbrella. Just everyone who said they were Christian was a Christian in my mind. It didn't even occur to me that some people would intentionally misuse the Bible for their own gain. I hadn't gotten to that part of scripture yet. So I ended up listening to incorrect teaching for quite a long time, following false teachers, listening to the music that their churches put out, listening to their sermons and thinking, oh, I've never heard this before. Well, of course I hadn't. It was false teaching. And then some people around me started correcting me somewhere along the way. I started seeing, hang on a second, they're right. They keep asking me for my money. Why do they do that? Second Peter 2 reads this. There were indeed false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. They will bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways, and the way of truth will be maligned because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. Their condemnation, pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. Peter tells us here that just as in the days of the Old Testament where there were false prophets, now, to the readers of this letter, there's gonna be false teachers among them. In fact, they're already there. He knows that by this time. False teachers have already infiltrated their ranks, living amongst them, leading people astray. And this might strike some fear into our hearts when we think about, this is thousands of years ago, there's probably a lot more false teachers today lest we be led astray as well, we might be thinking, this is scary. So how do we recognize false teachers? Oftentimes in the Bible, people who prophesy are just called prophets, whether or not they're false teachers, whether or not they're false prophets. Rather than outright say who they are, the Bible basically instead points out the results of what happens when they prophesy, points out their behavior, And these are the things, the results and the behavior are the things that are to be examined in order for us to know whether or not these are false prophets or false teachers. Here in these verses on the screen, we can see what kind of behavior these teachers are gonna be exhibiting. Number one, they'll bring in destructive heresies. Two, they'll even deny the master who bought them. And three, they'll exploit you in their greed with made-up stories. We can also see what the results of their behavior are gonna be. They're gonna be bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved ways. That's probably the scariest one of all. And the way of truth will be maligned because of them. You will know them by their fruits just as your faith produces good fruit. We looked at that last week, right? As we saw last week, their lack of faith will be displayed in their lifestyles, which are oftentimes indiscernible from those outside of Christ. The way of truth will be slandered as well, causing people to blaspheme God. This, I think this frustrates me probably more than anything else when it comes to false teachers. When I see not just our faith, not just our people, but our beautiful, great God, being blasted by people who don't even know any better, who don't know him because of the behavior of these false teachers and their depraved ways of living. The scripture tells us destruction will be swift for those who cause his name to be dragged through the mud. When they ignore Jesus' teaching, when they dishonor God. In effect, what they're saying is, God's not sovereign over my life. I'm the master of my life. They might pay lip service to God, saying they love him. They might do certain things even for the church. But their lifestyles will tell the truth, and all sins will be brought into the light. For you, new life, my brothers and sisters do not follow their depraved ways. It says in scripture, many will follow their depraved ways. Do not be amongst them. False teachers will make all sorts of promises to you, calling out to you like Lady Folly in the Proverbs, saying, come, stolen bread is sweeter, take it. They'll entice you into sexual sin and call it freedom. They'll tell you It's fine to live for yourself. Spend lavishly. Spoil yourself. It's fine. Make your life all about you. It'll be enticing, but don't follow their depraved ways. Second Peter goes on. But these people, verses 12 to 19. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, slander what they do not understand. And in their destruction, they too will be destroyed. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in broad daylight. Their spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery that never stop looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. Children under a curse They've gone astray by abandoning the straight path and have followed the path of Balaam, the son of Bosor who loved the wages of wickedness but received a rebuke for his lawlessness. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without water, mists driven by a storm. The gloom of darkness has been reserved for them, for by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery, people who have barely escaped from those who live in error. They promised them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption since people are enslaved to whatever defeats them. So these false teachers might claim to have wisdom, or they might have the appearance of freedom even, but truly, they're like senseless animals, driven by their basest instincts, Slaves to their own desires. Do not be fooled. Don't allow yourselves to become less human by following them. Those who would debase themselves to being lower than donkeys, scripture tells us. You are royalty. You were bought at a high price. Jesus' blood was spilled for you. So don't debase yourselves by forgetting your identity. Don't dirty your royal robes with this mud, the dirt of corruption. The Bible tells us that these false teachers came to the believers' gatherings, indulging themselves and fulfilling their own agendas. They exist amongst us. Since Jesus was not their Lord, they came in doing their own thing. I wonder if you've seen this before. This passage is, I think, especially painful because of how relevant it remains today. With these sickening false teachers who lead others into sin. I don't know if you're up to date on Christian news or if you, you know, maybe just look at the church. There's people that are sexual predators that are unsafe for the community. They live for their desires. And people get led into their corruption as well. Instead of controlling and mastering their desires, people are set loose. The sad irony of their situation is that this very judgment that they refuse to believe in, as they tell people to follow them into this false freedom, they're enslaved to it. And this is the judgment that's waiting for them to bring them destruction. Now, I wanna pause for a moment here and ask you to examine yourself. Ask God to reveal your heart to you, to show you where you're at as you read this passage in 2 Peter. You may identify yourself in one of two ways here. One, there's sins that you're aware of in your life that may even be repetitive, you're sick of them. They keep happening, and you don't understand why, but you constantly confess, you constantly repent, you turn back to God, you know your continuing need for Jesus in your life. If this is you, then still you are seeking Christ. As you continue to love Him and worship Him as Lord over your life, I pray that you will continue down this path to make every area of your life to bow to Him as Lord as you're conformed more and more into His image and grow in His holiness. Or two, you've learned to just live with your sins. Maybe you've even convinced yourself that you're not sinning, that these things that you partake in are okay. Maybe you've even convinced other people around you to join you in your sin. You try your best to put Jesus out of your mind Maybe you've even convinced yourself he doesn't mind, or that there will be no judgment. If this is you, make no mistake. Second Peter is very clear: there is this final judgment. I pray that you would turn from your sin, come to recognize Jesus' lordship over your life, that you would confess and repent, and honor God with your life, self. Let's finish up the passage here in verses 20 to 22. For if having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a washed sow returns to wallowing in the mud. Unfortunately, when it comes to times like these, we tend to distance ourselves from false teaching and false teachers. We all, do you know this? We all tend to have this bias where we come out ahead. When we examine things, when we examine things that come against the ways that we live, when we come against philosophies or faith that might be different from us, the standard is, in our minds, usually just what we believe, and we think, this is orthodox, this is the right way, rather than what makes us uncomfortable. We don't like being challenged, we don't like being changed. Real world example here, okay, look at me. What can you tell me about my health? Like, when you look at my face, is there anything that looks not quite right? not in a subjective way, please, but more in an objective way. Something is not quite right. Does it look like there's anything particularly wrong with me? I might even, as I go through life, convince myself, my health is pretty okay. Everything's fine. But until I go to a doctor, I'm not going to know. You know what I'm saying here? Like, I've also had friends in my life who have felt like something is not quite right with their health, but they don't want to make it official by going to a doctor. Then it will become too real for them, and so they go throughout life thinking, everything's okay, it's okay, don't worry about that. Does this make sense to you? My friends are still sick, whether or not a doctor assesses them. It's just that they also get to add denial on top of the list of ailments. I want you to recognize the greatest doctor You know, the surgeon who can pierce through all of this denial, all of the layers of shame and embarrassment and fear that we hide beneath. Hebrews 4 talks about scripture like this. For the word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from it, all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. By the Holy Spirit, allow the word of God, this prophetic witness, to pierce through you, revealing the truth to you so that your soul may be saved. It's the faithful witness, consistent in its assessment and its guidance over your life. It's never subjective about your life it will always tell you as it is. But not only is it consistent in these things, in this assessment of you, the beautiful thing is it's also consistent in this message of grace and it's love for you. The message is this, that Jesus Christ came to this world to save sinners like you and me. And even if you consider yourself to be the worst of all sinners, You've received mercy that Jesus might display through you his extraordinary patience to all those others who might see and believe in him for eternal life. There's nowhere else in this world that you can turn to for forgiveness for the things of your past, the things that you're living through now, and the things that are still to come. You don't have to keep faking it any longer. You don't have to keep running away but instead turn back, draw near to the Lord, and you'll find his arms are already wide open, waiting to embrace you, call you his child. Clean up your ropes once again. Why don't I pray for us? Father, we thank you We thank you that here in Scripture, we have a faithful witness. We have not only Peter and the other apostles and their eyewitness accounts, but we have the prophetic witness that Scripture is to us. A witness to your glory, to your majesty, and your coming again. Thank you, Lord, for your precious promises. Too many to list out. But one of the greatest of all is a promise of your grace, the promise of your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, when it feels like we can't even forgive ourselves, you're still waiting for us. Thank you, Lord, that even when it feels like we struggle to assess ourselves fairly, you're still Lord, that even when we've led others astray, still you wait for us. You are a good God, a gracious, patient Heavenly Father. You're the one that's trustworthy, you're the one that's true, and you're the one that we want to turn to today. us through our shame, our embarrassment, our fear. To shed those things, to place them aside. To confess and repent before you and to say you are Lord over our lives and I commit my life to you. Help us Lord to love you as we continue in worship throughout this service, throughout this day. May that be the imprint over our whole lives.